VinePair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Uh, Zach, Joanna, how, how were your holiday weekends? What's going on? You want to take it, Zach? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> you know... Uh, Never misses they, a chance to be to be called on first. Well, I I you know I, I just I just I just follow the the lead. So um, it was nice. You know, we had a pretty low key fourth. We had uh, a few of my cousins over uh, for what my wife, who's from Wisconsin, refers to as cooking out. What I refer to as grilling. Whatever, it's cool. Um, and yeah, it was it was pretty pretty casual. I mean, you know, the Fourth of July is. Uh, a rough night for my dog, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but you know, he did okay. And, uh, it was just kind of interesting. It was nice to have my wife basically had a four day weekend, which was kind of cool. So, um, by yesterday I was like, Oh wait, we gotta go back. <laughs> like she's gotta go back to work, which just means her office. Yeah. Here. Um, but still, you know, it's like an adjustment for, for all of us. Like, Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> she just, she's got to actually like, get up and do calls and stuff. So it was nice. Uh, drank some, a lot of rosé over the weekend. Uh, it was warm and sunny and, you know, good weather for rosé and some chilled reds from Northern Italy. Yeah, it was, it was, it was lovely. Joanna, what'd you do? Nice. Yeah. Our, uh, 4th of July was also very low key. We just, uh, kind of hung out at home. We're on our route for roof for a little bit, sorry. And, um, grab dinner at a local restaurant. So we also had some rosé and uh, had some more tip-top proper cocktails, which I love. Mm. <laughs> I really like them. Um, I also had a really good Oaxaca Old Fashioned. Nice. Mm-hmm. Very, very you? cool. So my my 4th of July was good and also not good. Um, oh. Yeah. So, I mean, on the, on the good front... I had some really delicious wine. Um, we so I went to where my wife is from, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and we um, brought some really cool wines with us. And, and Keith, uh, who's our tasting director, and his wife Gina came along, and we had like a bottle of Biondi Santi that was incredible. Uh, we had some, you know, really good Valtellina. We also actually had a really great uh, winery that's made in Pennsylvania. It's Vox Vinetti. It was a, it's a winemaker. He was a big wine lover from you know, Manhattan moved to Pennsylvania, found this amazing piece of property and is making like Nebbiolo and things like that, which is awesome. Um, Then on the not good front, which I actually, I wasn't sure I was going to talk about this, but I kind of feel like I need to. So uh, that night of the 4th of July, we were playing, we were like, you know, playing with fireworks in the front yard. Everyone was like the whole neighborhood. And this, uh, this guy across the street came out and yelled effing Jews at us. Ooh. And it wasn't the first time that I've experienced anti-Semitism in my life, but it was pretty jarring. And it reminded me of the two times recently I've, you know, experienced it actually in our industry. Um, mm. Once in which an Amarone producer told me without knowing I was Jewish that the reason his Amarone prices were falling was because the Jews controlled the markets. And another time when I was in Chile and a wine producer said to me that the reason Chile is known for cheap wine is because of the Jews. Okay. And I just sort of thought about that and thought, you know, this is completely unacceptable. And the fact that, that this person felt like it was okay to yell at us, he had no clue that we were Jewish, right? Besides the fact that my in-laws are, but they're not outwardly looking Jewish at all, mm-hmm. meaning that they're not religious, right? So they don't wear like any sort of head coverings or et cetera. Um, and the fact that 
but he chose to yell that at us anyway. Keith, obviously, you know, are not Jewish. Um, and then the fact that these two producers in the last year have said these things to me, sort of, was not, I guess, not last year, prior to COVID, sort of as a like, oh, well, we 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 know the truth, right? We know this is why. Just made me feel like I needed to say something, um, yeah, because it's completely unacceptable and absolutely ridiculous. And you know, we're talking about all these other times where we are we want to root out all the issues that are, you know, huge, you know, huge issues in our sort of wine culture, drinking culture, whether it's sexism, racism, xenophobia, et cetera. And I feel like myself, you know, if, when this has happened to me, I have not spoken up in the past. I think in both those situations, I didn't say anything. And Mm -hmm. this weekend sort of made me regret that. Um, You know, I wanted to either protect the publicist who apologized for the winemaker who said it, or I sort of wanted to, you know, look the other way. And I want to sort of, you know, say like at this point, like I'm not going to protect those people anymore. And actually the publicist who wanted to protect that winemaker, I'm pretty disappointed, still has that winery as a client, um, which is not cool. So anyways, not to take us down a like weird (laughs) path, um, but it was just something that I've been thinking about, you know, since it happened on Saturday as like the way that it ended my, sorry, not Saturday, Sunday as it like weirdly ended my 4th of July weekend. Um, I felt like it needed to be somewhat brought up just because like, again, I feel like we all have to talk about these things or they're just not going to go away. I'm really yeah. sorry that happened to you. That sucks. It was nuts. It's really <laughs> disgusting. Yeah. It's funny, you know, Adam, I, I think you and I have talked off air about this before, but I too have been subjected to anti-Semitism and also been present when those kinds of things have been said when someone doesn't necessarily know that I'm Jewish and, and yeah, it's, it's awkward for sure. I mean, it's it's both offensive and awkward, and it's hard when you are in a position where, you know, you don't, you know, like like for me, it's often been hardest with you know with sort of quote unquote jokes where you're like, well, yep. do I want to be the person who makes a big deal about this? And and I one time in particular came very very close to saying something. It was I, I sort of, you know, I I kind of regret not doing it. I I also think you know it's kind of one of those things where sometimes you make a decision where the person telling the joke that's inappropriate is just, you know, frankly, someone who passed away within the next year and was quite old. And I just kind of was like, is this really worth getting into? I, I don't know that it right. is. Um, and so, you know, you kind of end up in this place where you just sort of say, well, you know, I recognize this. And, you know, a couple of the people who were with me, you know, also were like, oh, you know, that was shitty of this person, they should not have said that, you know, but it also reminds you that, you know, these, this, this thinking, these, these beliefs, this sort of casualness to, and whether it's, you know, anti-Semitism, you know, or bigotry of all other kinds, it is, it's there. And, and, and sometimes, you know, frankly, I've thought in my, in my life, Hey, you know, when someone speaks up about it, you know, says, says something in that vein, I know where they stand, you know, they, if they never say anything and they're just thinking it real hard, you know, it's a lot, a lot, you don't kind of know where you're at with that person. And when they, when they open their mouths and, and say something like that, you kind of go, Oh, okay. Yep. Now, now I, now I know this is how you feel about, you know, me or, or, you know, or women or people of color or whatever, right? Like it's not, it's obviously this happens in a lot of ways. And, and I know that many of our listeners have been, you know, present for and, and the, either, you know, sort of intentional or unintentional victim of this kind of thing too. So, so it's obviously not just anti-Semitism. It's just what I think, yeah, for you and me, Adam, we've experienced personally. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, ever a lot of people who probably listen to experience this in another form, whether it's sexism, racism, et cetera. And it's just not appropriate. It's not okay. And, you know, I feel like, you know, if you are listening and this happened to you, you know, it can be really scary to say something in the moment, right? You don't want to say something you, you know, but I think whether you address it later or you talk to the, you know, to people who are involved, it is important if you feel like you can. And I think it's important for people who, you know, represent these kinds of people to know, like, if you have a, if you have a client, I understand that like, that's revenue, but if you have a client that is doing these kinds of things or are saying these kinds of things, you know, you're, it's a reflection on you if you continue to work with them, whether that's, you know, oh, well, that's just their, you know, in this regard, when it was the winemaker from Italy, oh, well, he's just their, uh, he's their export manager. You know, he's, he's just only one of the brothers. Okay. He's the export manager. Come on. You know, that means he deals with people publicly all the time, you know, and that reflects on that winery. So you shouldn't be working with them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, regardless of what fees they pay. Um, so, you know, I think, again, we have a lot of work to do. And unfortunately, over the past, you know, four and a half, five years, there's been sort of an acceptance of saying these things again, right? Um, and hopefully we're moving away from that. Um, but it definitely seems to still be a large amount of people who are very emboldened to say very hateful things to people, whether they know or don't know those people are part of those groups. Um, and it's, it's not cool. It's not cool. Anyways, I will, I will change the subject. So we don't only talk about this for the rest of the, uh, for the episode and get into a different one, which is also, um, you know, equally, I think about acceptance and trying to make things more, uh, inclusive to all people. So Zach, I'll let you jump into our topic for today. Yeah. So this started as a, as a just a thought in my head that that's that's been kind of getting more and more uh, concrete over the last couple of years, and and it's come from a lot of um, teaching and working with the public on wine in particular, and and it's the sense that I have that unfortunately the wine industry in particular, and, and I think you see this spilling out into beer, into spirits, et cetera, too, because it's it's so endemic in wine, is this emphasis on really specific, really almost uh, comical uh, tasting notes and very sort of, you know, European centric too. And so what I mean by this is if you go look at, you know, the tasting notes for a wine and it says, you know, uh, late harvest or late season blackberry compote and, you know, uh, spring sandalwood. I mean, like, you know, the, the kind of language that I think all of us in one way or another kind of roll our eyes at in a sense but it also has this real kind of pernicious effect, which is that it, in my opinion, at least, it really gives the consumer, it gives wine drinkers, and and not even just casual wine drinkers, but frankly, people who drink a lot of wine, people who work in the trade, it creates this sense that every wine is a test and basically all of us fail all of them because, you know, picking out all of those tasting notes, A, they're often being just kind of pulled out of someone's ass to be completely honest. You know, you got to fill, <laughs> you got to, you got to write a paragraph about a wine. If you're a reviewer or if you're, or if you're the, um, you know, you're the, the person creating the shelf talkers for the winery or for the distributor or whatever, you got to say something. And there's only so many ways to describe wine. There's only so many flavors and aromas. I mean, there are a lot of them, but in the end, how many different ways can you say blackberry? So you come up with, you know, 
you know, forest, so many ways. <laughs> yeah, forest Marion barrier. I mean, like you know, you're kind of you're kind of just like looking to find this stuff. But it, again, it creates this idea that these flavors, these aromas, are not just present in the wine, but distinguishable for everyone, right? Oh, you should, if you drink this wine, you should get these notes. That's the perception that we, that the industry gives off. And it's, I think, both wrong. Like that is not true. And also serves to alienate people. I mean, I was just pouring for for the public in an event the other day and it was, you know, people are like, oh, well, like, what are the, like, what should I be getting in this wine? I was like, you should be like, just drink it. Like, I mean, like you can tell me what you think, but like, this isn't a test. I don't have a score sheet here. I'm not looking to like grade how good of a wine drinker you are. I'm really disinterested in that entirely. And so, but, but it's so it's become, you know, because of the popularity of, of sommeliers and, and all this culture around it. Like, again, this idea that every wine is a test for people is, is the one that I really want to see go away. And, and Joanna, because, you know, you're someone who is you know sort of newer to wine. Like, like, I would love to know from you, does this, is this ring true? Does this feel like something that you have experienced? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I feel like when, I don't know, I guess I don't look to my, my initial thought when I'm, I'm tasting a wine is like what I taste versus mm-hmm. what I think I'm supposed to taste. Okay. And, and so seeing something that says like, you know, uh, Marion Berry, I'm like, oh, maybe I can pick up some berry qualities or berry on the, on the palate or something. But, but I think, um, I'm not necessarily looking to those descriptors to inform how it tastes for me. I think it's like, if I can taste, taste a wine and then, and then identify something that that's been written, great. But I feel like for but I but I also understand what you're saying, Zach. I think for people, especially people who are trying to educate themselves about wine, people who are attending classes, I, I understand this desire to want to be able to taste what a professional says you you should taste. Yeah. And I and you- I, I see where that's problematic because I think you know that kind of leaves it to your own palate and what you've tasted. So if you, if you haven't tasted a Marionberry, which I don't actually think I have, um, then, then you're excluded from that experience. Right. Well, do you find it to be, so I guess, Joanna, like, do you, do you think when you see these tasting notes that they're actually, they're more like, do you find them to be intimidating? And do you think that, or are they, cause I, I definitely heard that from, from newer wine drinkers. It's like, or not newer in terms of it's your first, glass of wine but people are getting into wine that like that's what has always intimidated them you know to begin with or do you just kind of think that they're pointless i actually find you know what i find more intimidating are some of these other descriptors that i'm like mm-hmm. i don't know what mm. a chewy what is a chewy wine mm. uh, what is a crunchy wine i'm like i'm like i don't know that's when i feel stupid and I'm uh. like, i don't know a crunchy wine is no i agree i think I think a lot of this, you know, a lot of what, you know, is, you know, an issue with wine is that it's created this language for itself, mm-hmm. you know, over years and years and years of writing about it and people collecting it and making it, which is great, but it does then create a barrier to entry. The only, like, th- the only challenge that I would posit, which is something that I think Zach, you and I've, you know, talked about before is that. I think a lot of people in wine like that barrier, mm. right? Like mm-hmm. the barrier to entry means that not everyone can enter the luxury market. I mean, think about it this way, right? So if you're talking about handbags, right? Again, 
Adam's favorite comparison. <laughs> I haven't talked about Seriously, in the past. But no. I no, I haven't. Yeah. Oh, yes, that? you have. <laughs> Faction, whatever. So, right, not everyone's allowed to buy a Birkin bag. Like, you have to walk into Hermes and you have to ask a certain way and they have to sort of size you up and then you get, you know, they'll let you buy a Birkin, right? It's like it's an elite club. And then when you have the Birkin, you sort of are known as someone who was able to buy a Birkin. I think in a lot of ways, the way we talk about wine is like, are you in the know or are you not? Like, are you, I'm going to say things in a way like, are you going to appreciate this wine or are you just buying it because it's expensive? I mean, I had, you know, a similar experience recently where I went out to dinner with some people and we went to a very nice restaurant in Manhattan, um, Le Bernardine. Uh, <laughs> and, and basically, you know, um, I ordered a bottle of wine and the, and like literally the descriptors, so basically like the, the wine came to the table. It was from an area of, um, of Burgundy that is not known for having the best Pinot Noirs. But if, if you're on this specific spot in this area, you actually might as well be in one of the best areas of Burgundy for Pinot. Okay. And, you know, the two people that I was with love wine, but like don't know a lot about or don't speak the language. And so they asked, hey, can you tell us about the wine? And he just like went off like this laundry list of all these random descriptors and sort of saying what I said, but like almost making them think that like, you know, the, the wine was just like diamond in the rough, but in a really weird way that totally overwhelmed them. And all they were looking for him to say is like, oh, like the producer is this person. They're really known for making whatever. And the wine's fucking delicious. Yeah. You know, like that's literally all basically they were looking for. And I think it was almost like he was and, – and they – when he left, they were, they were saying it also like he was testing them. Do, do they understand what he's saying? Yeah. And that's what I've always wondered with wine is like is it sort of both, right? Is it that first of all, if you – to become really versed in wine, you're almost forced to learn all these descriptors and all these you know ways to talk about it because you want to be able to have these conversations with other people in the know. So it's a way to challenge people, but then it's also this barrier for a lot of people. And as, I mean, Joanna, as you were saying before we started recording, it also then doesn't take into account the experiences of so many people who are currently coming into wine, who, you know, have different aroma experiences, have different cuisine experiences than this traditional, like really very much French, you know, mm -hmm. Eurocentric way that we've always talked about wine. I think that, that to I think you make a, a a good point, Adam, about a segment of the wine industry kind of reveling in, uh, in some sense, in the way that the language creates a barrier to entry. But I mean, tasting notes like I've described are ubiquitous, and you see them on seven dollar bottles of wine as much as you see them on seven hundred dollar bottles of wine, and and so it's not just a high end problem. I think it's an all of wine problem, and and that to me comes back to an, a fundamental issue that we have um, about in, in the industry, which is, okay, if we want to talk about wine in a way that is accessible to people, but also isn't like the opposite side of this sometimes, which is like, oh, whatever, it's just, it's good, right? Like, I also find that to be a little bit like, eh, okay, fine, you can't make, like, I think there is a middle ground to 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 find, and it's maybe a middle ground of accepting that, most people probably given their 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 life experience may yeah may not be able to distinguish between blackberry and marionberry and loganberry and boysenberry and all these things but they probably have had berries before right they have some sense of that right the and maybe they know <laughs> and maybe they know they can't tell you 
you know, the difference between all these different kinds of pairs, but they've had a pair before. So, so it's about simplifying the language and recognizing that in simplifying the language a little bit, um, yes, will there be a little bit of, of nuance lost? But I honestly think that a lot of those nuances, you know, they're in the eye of the beholder in the first place. Like they're, you know, one person's, you know, ripe pear is another person's tart pear. Like it's very, very hard to, to sort of objectively discern these things in my opinion. And, and it's a considered opinion. And at the same time to talk about other parts of the wine experience and the, 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 the sort of impact of the wine on us that, that often don't get mentioned in tasting notes in particular, right. they get talked about some in professional circles and, and they're the things they're, they're adjacent to the things you both recoiled against, you know, chewy, <laughs> crunchy, but they are more about the texture of the wine. And and because, and one of the reasons why I think it's so important to talk about texture when it comes to wine, and this is also true with, with anything that we drink, is because for so many of us, honestly, truly, the things that we like and don't like, whether it's food or drink, have a lot more to do with texture than they do flavor. Yes, some flavors are off-putting, but a lot of people, and I, and I see this because I have a child, and so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm seeing him learn what he does and doesn't like it's so much more about the the texture of a thing than the flavor of a thing because you know flavors are you know are malleable and and we can learn to appreciate new flavors but if you don't like mushy things you're never going to like a banana it doesn't matter what the banana tastes like like the texture of the thing is the problem and so wine too has lots of different textures that has to do with the ripeness of the grapes the level of alcohol if there's residual sugar the tannins mm-hmm. all these things and more and yet so often that element of wine is not mentioned or or it's given a kind of opaque term like crunchy, chewy. Like I could sit here and ex- try and explain to you what those things mean. But, but the point is like we could talk a lot more in tasting notes, in descriptions of wine. And I think it would be good for everyone in the industry to do this, to talk much more about the actual physical sensations of having the wine and waste a lot less time talking about ephemeral and very hard to define aromas and flavors because they're so you know, a wine that's high in tannin is going to have the exact same physiological impact on everyone who drinks it, Mm -hmm. or at least within a narrow band, because it's just a physical and chemical reaction in your mouth. It's not based on a memory. And and if you didn't have red currants when you were a kid and you don't know what the fuck a red currant tastes like, (laughs) you're talking about how the wine tastes like that is just, you might (laughs) as well, it might as well be gibberish, but everyone can, can sort of recognize if they pay attention to it and part of it is paying attention to it of course it what the what the what their physical you know tactile uh you know tactile senses are are telling them it just we have to be willing to talk about those things and and mm-hmm. i mean i find them fascinating and interesting and in how wine affects us in the same way that it's interesting to talk about how drinking wine how alcohol affects us and how over the course of an evening you know all the the things we experience will be in some way affected by that. So, so it's just, it, 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 I don't know. It, it, I get why the florid prose sell seems to sell bottles or sounds good or give someone something to do, but, but I just don't think it does anyone any real good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I also find that those types of descriptors and like we were saying, the more objective ones that perhaps more people experience um, also feel kind of intimidating, almost as intimidating as saying something tastes like rare fruit you've never had. I agree with Joanna. But I but I'm wondering <laughs> I'm wondering is that because reading it you know reading the or hearing someone say it without any explanation is yeah. is more alienating. I, I get that. Yes. I mean, someone can say this wine tastes like an anjou uh, you know, an anjou pear and you might say 
okay, well, I maybe not had that, or I don't remember how that is different from other kinds of pears, but I know what pear tastes like. So I kind of can, can, you know, I feel okay about this and talking about a wine that is, uh, you know, rich and oily or a wine that is really lean and, and sort of linear or whatever. Those are those, those you need, we need to learn what it means to have those kinds Mm -hmm. of wines. But I do think that there's real value. I mean, again, you know, maybe this isn't for every last person who drinks wine. Um, Nothing is obviously, but for, but for people who want to learn a little more, I do think there's real value in focusing or or thinking about these, you know, sort of more, again, sort of more objective, more um, chemically and, and sort of physiologically derived experiences with wine then just emphasizing flavor in the same way that again i think like we we would we would be it would be it's like the difference between you know it's like kind of similar to the difference between al dente pasta and overcooked pasta right like it's mm-hmm. the same thing but our our experience eating it is different even though the noodles are the same either way yeah and i mean and look, wine I, too has this i think that the the problem we don't have enough of is that obviously yes any descriptors are are you know if, if you want to talk in descriptors good for you right if you want to get more into wine but i think the problem that we don't do you know that we encounter all the time that we need to try to rectify is when you are someone who is selling wine or you are someone talking about wine to people who are you know who love wine but aren't as geeky or learning just say it's fucking good and I yeah. think that that's something that beer does much better than wine, you know, and I think spirits do in a way too, right? There is, you know, this, and also don't judge people for words they use because you think you know better than them. I mean, mm-hmm. look, again, a public a publication we will not name wrote a whole takedown of the word smooth recently. And I'm like, it's not the people's fault who use that word. You know, don't be a fucking prick. Like- there's literally – I get that you don't like that word, but that word exists in so many other beverages. Oh, this whiskey is really smooth. Oh, this you know New England IPA is really smooth and fluffy. That Of course people are going to apply it to wine. you know. And so get over it and try to understand why they like that. <laughs> many wineries have sold their wine based on the notion that it's smooth. I mean that's that was the selling point for a lot of like California Merlot for a long time. It's like – it's smooth like that. Yeah, that's or, yeah. or red blends. Same thing, right? Like, and again, that that's where then I question like, do you really want to make money? Like, do you really <laughs> want to get other people into these beverages? Right. right? Do you want to get them excited? Because if you did, you would amend your language and you would become more accessible. And if you don't, then you won't. And then don't be upset when like, you know, don't don't be angry at the companies that have, that have decided they're going to figure it out and do it. Don't shake your fist at the sky and be like, "Well, they're big, they're big wine," you know. Well, but they figured it out and they're bringing more people in to wine in general, and there's something that's awesome about that. So, you know, I, I think we'd be much better off starting with the wine is really delicious. It's super refreshing. People know what refreshing is, right? When you're talking about a white, this is a very refreshing mm-hmm. white wine. It might remind you of lemonade. Most people know what lemonade tastes like, right? Or, you know, this is a really, uh, this is a great red wine with the steak that I see that you ordered, right? You'll love it. You know, things like that, I think are much better. And I think that, you know, the reason that a few, gosh, now a decade or more ago, someone like Gary Vaynerchuk had such success was he just was willing to say that these tasted like banana runs or mm-hmm. this tasted like juicy fruit 
right? And I don't think that there were a, a more people in America who knew what juicy fruit tastes like. I don't really remember what juicy fruit tastes like, um, you know, and I wasn't allowed to have a lot of candy growing up. But I think people were just like, oh my gosh, he's breaking the mold and using candy and other things as opposed to en pair, which I love that that's what we're using right now in this conversation. <laughs> the one, but you know, it was just refreshing to people that he wasn't scared to say it tasted like something else. And I think at the end of the day, what's so cool about wine is that wine tastes like what you remember, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So it's, it's all based on flavors you've had before. And so when you walk up to a consumer who's getting into wine and say, you're going to have X, Y, and Z, and they don't taste those things, maybe because they're not as familiar with those flavors, you just make them feel stupid. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't understand why we can't want to just get people into wine and also why we can't just why there has to be such this one upsmanship of, you know, what is good and what isn't. So for example, I will, you know, another thing that happened to me this last weekend. was <laughs> not a weekend, my goodness. Yeah. No, but I think it's interesting. Like, cause this goes back to what you guys are talking about. Like Keith and I went to this amazing producer, Vox Vinetti, and we had his Nebbiolo, which was really, really good. He, you know, but it tastes a lot like a Valtellina. It was, you know, much leaner, less tan and higher ass, all that stuff. And I posted that on Instagram and I had a few Psalms who slipped into my DMs, some of whom I'm not actually friends with who just happened to follow me. We're like, there's no way and there's no way. I'm like, that's what my palate told me. Yeah. You, you can trust my, trust my palate or don't. Why are you arguing with me? Yeah. You know, that is exactly what my palate said it tasted like to me based on the other Valtellinas which I, that I've had, of which I've had a fair amount because I like that style of wine. Why, what's the fight? Why, why does it matter? I posted that. I'm not trying to say that this is that Pennsylvania is going to be the next source of like the best nebula in the world. I didn't say any of that. Right. Like, and I feel like that's the problem with wine that we need to get over is don't tell the consumer tastes like strawberries. Let them tell you what they think it tastes like. I just think it tastes good. Awesome. Then that's how it tastes. I think this tastes like boysenberries. Sweet. Don't know what a boysenberry is, but good for you. Like those are the, this reminds me of the red wine I used to drink with my grandmother. Dope. This is from Virginia, but it tastes like Bordeaux. Awesome. Like those are all – people should just get to have their own experiences with wine and everyone else should shut the fuck up. <laughs> well, I think there's also one last piece of this, which is that there there is this unfortunate um, belief that there like are right wines and wrong wines, good – I mean good and bad, but that, but that for so often like, you know, the, the – I mean this is like a little bit of a – uh, whatever, like the right wine is the wine that you like in a lot of ways. And also just like, again, coming back to this notion of it's not a test. Like I found this a lot as a, as a sommelier, like so often with tables, you know, they, they do want to be sort of essentially told what, what you said at a meal. Like, yeah. Oh, this is really good fucking wine. Like you'll be really happy with this. And that, you know, I always train my servers and stuff. Hey, you know, someone tells you what they like, or you get into a part of the menu. And like my job as the wine director is to make sure that all the wine is good. Right. So, yep. so I mean, the point is that you're not going to ever get to like, Oh, this wine that, they, that I recommend to them is the right wine. And all other wines are the wrong wine. Like well-made wine is well-made wine. And and if people like the broad stroke style that, that it's in, they're going to probably like it. You know, yes, some people might be more particular than others. This is true in all things, but like at some point you kind of get to yourself, you get yourself, and you and you get your your guests, your consumers, whatever, 
in this headspace where they're, again, worried about being wrong, worried about making mistakes. And then that's when they choose something else, right? They step yep. away they or they go back to the same old, same old they've always bought or ordered. And and it's that it's it's a language problem. It's a marketing problem. It's an attitudinal problem for sure. Um, and I think, you know, it's unfortunate because it's pretty widely spread. But it's also exciting to me because I think it is an area. And, and to come back to something I think, uh, we, you know, Joanna said before, like it is an area where as you get people coming into the to wine from other places, right, from other backgrounds, other experiences, um, you do see people who are just like, whatever, I don't need this framing, right? I don't need to play within this um, mm-hmm. kind of established benchmark and, and, and established, you know, sort of lexicon that, that exists around wine in a very kind of, yeah, you know, Eurocentric way. And so I, I think it's super exciting to see, you know, people breaking out of that framework and using the verbiage that makes sense to them, right? That, that, that is connected to their life experiences, their sense memories, and and the foods they eat and all that stuff. And that's fantastic. And I may or may not connect with all of it. It may not be in my lived experience, but that's, you know, wine and the wine industry would be all the richer for more of that and less of the same old shit that's been, been written for the last 50, 60, 70 years. Totally. I completely agree. Yeah, I think and just just one last thing. Like, I yes. think one of, some of my favorite wine experiences that I've had is when I've been at a restaurant and and expressed to a psalm the types of flavors or wines that I like, and then they bring me something that they think I will like. I agree. That's how it should always be, right? Like, yeah. at the end of the day, you know, I've had a wine recently that's like one of the trendy wines out of California right now. I don't really love oak. I didn't really love this wine, you know, but a lot of people do right now. And that's, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I think that's, that's why, you know, even with critics, like the reason certain critics took off in the past and still have followings is that they have palettes other people like, whether there's a lot of other people in wine that don't agree with those people's palettes. And that's also okay. You know, it's like, we, we shouldn't just make wine for one person's palate. That was a huge mistake when we, when everyone followed Parker and we're now correcting that. But it's okay if some wineries make that style of wine and his palate likes that style of wine and there's a lot of people that like that style of wine. That's okay. I mean, I just think that it, there's so much variety in the world of beverage, you know, that we can all find things that are delicious. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's just as you said, Zach, you know, it's the it's the job of the the person selling that wine mm-hmm. to just ensure that the person knows that it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> and I that's think the, really the about more language it. we can use to describe wine the better. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Well, guys, this has been a great conversation as always. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't be with you next week. You're going to miss me I so know. Much. But I also do want to hear, you know, listeners, if you have thoughts on this, like this is a subject where we, I mean, we love to get your feedback on anything, but this kind of topic where we're, we're kind of, you know, trying to, to push the conversation forward in in how we talk about and think about things like wine, um, you know, please email us podcast at vinepair.com. It's really exciting to hear from you all, whether you agree or disagree, whether you think uh, Adam's, uh, you know, Pennsylvania Nebbiolo is crap. Um, hey, hey, hey. Let us know. Well, slide into his DMs for that, I guess. I'm sure it's I good. I, I would love to try it. I'm just saying. I got, I had some bottles. I have some bottles. Oh, excellent. All right, guys. Uh, you guys have enjoyed. I mean, you're gonna have such not a good conversation without me next week. But <laughs> I hope it's. I hope it's at least a B. A B. I hope it's at least okay, a B we'll, level we'll, conversation. We'll see what we can do. Talk to you guys later. All right. Bye. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. 
and it really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.